So this morning is June 12th, 2016. Uh, message this morning is called Wavering Indulgence or Pentecost. On the Hebrew calendar, it is the 7th, I'm sorry, the 6th of Savan. It's the year 5,776 since the creation of man, according to Judaism. It's a special date because they call today Shavuot. And Shavuot has extraordinary significance in their history and yours. We tend to call it Pentecost because we're wrong. They, they got the right to hear God name it. And in their language at Shavuot, I'm going to call it both today. And we're going to understand that even when I say a wrong thing, God will honor it because it's a right heart here. But Pentecost means 50. It's the counting of 50 weeks from something. I want to go through a few of those things with you. Is that all right? So since it's a time that the nation of Israel remembers and celebrates Pentecost, I thought it'd be my expressed intent today for us to experience Pentecost. How you feel about that? So often we're okay sitting in church and ascending to an idea. But really what we want to do is we want to hear something that we can join into and actually experience. Would you like to personally experience Pentecost? Now, I'm tricking you Baptist folks out there. If you can get one hand up, what is the great sin in getting the other hand up? Think of it like a bowl to hold all of God's blessings, like a funnel that is going to go straight into your heart. And uh, perhaps it won't be quite so offensive. Amen? You know, I sat in a church for years where I was a wicked, lying, uh, claiming to be backslidden, but truthfully just a goat in sheep's clothing. And no one had a problem with me. And I got filled with the Holy Ghost. And nobody told me I wasn't allowed to raise my hands. And because I just happened to, I'd never met a Pentecostal or charismatic person in my whole life. I suddenly became a problem in the congregation. I'm through with that kind of thing. Are you through with that kind of thing? Can we authentically embrace the living God just like we were children in His presence? Have you noticed that children are not quite so self-conscious? They're not quite so apt to be concerned with exactly how they sit, how they stand. There is no business meeting happening among children when they're joyful. Amen? I want to be like a child as far as faith in the presence of my father. So let's go to our first slide. And um, for years, we have been talking about the feast of the Lord. So I'm not going to go through all of them with you, at least not in any depth. But what you see there in the beautiful harvest fields are that the first feast in Israel, this is a summary of Leviticus 23. If you want to follow these feasts as I give them to you, They are your chapter headings and section headings in Leviticus 23 of your Bible. Passover is on the 14th of Nisan. This begins the Jewish year. When this happened, it was not the beginning of the Jewish year. God says this is a new beginning for your year. In other words, their calendar started again in Passover. Actually, the seventh month becomes the first month of the year. Can you imagine that we were seven months through the year and you had such a radical experience with God that all of a sudden he said, we're going to count this as the first month. 
That would mess up a lot of people's calendars, huh? Well, it really depends on how the first uh, seven months had gone as to whether or not you would like that or not. If you were deeply indebted in the first seven months, if you were greatly behind in the first seven months, you might appreciate a new start. Are you beginning to see why it's those that are aware of their own sin that first come into the kingdom? And those that think they have no problems, they find themselves far from God. Passover was a time when the people experienced the blood of the Lamb. And having experienced the blood of the Lamb that saved them in the sense that death passed them over, the very first thing, it actually, Passover ends as unleavened bread begins. You can read about this in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. Unleavened bread and Passover's ending and beginning overlap in a way that they're indistinguishable from each other. And immediately after receiving the blood of the Lamb, What happens is you have to search your house and you're looking for any bit of unleavened bread, any bit of yeast, any bit of contaminant. The spirit of God would be symbolized through a lamp. It would look something like uh, like this. It's a menorah designed by God, the oldest lighting instrument in the world, actually designed by God with one, two, three, four, five six and seven branches of light on it. You would go through the house, the head of the household, searching, looking for any bits of contaminant in the house, and wife would follow right behind the husband. And oldest child, right behind the wife. Next oldest child, right behind that one, in the order of their birth. And the idea being, our father who is supposed to be the spiritual head of our house, will lead us in ridding this house of anything that offends God. That is the first order of business as you fall in love with the King of Kings. The Hebrews call that feast Hag Hamatzot. That means unleavened bread, and their bread is plural. The third feast, first fruits. This also relates to your walk. As you begin tidying up your life, looking for what doesn't belong in your life, the Lord begins to show you what He does want of you. The Christian walk is not defined by what you don't do. It is defined by what you do. It is an active religion. And because of that, what Judaism teaches us, and it's on their shoulders that we stand, is as soon as you begin to get your house clean, you have something to bring before the Lord. Now, the modern preacher would tell you that is your checkbook. I'm here to tell you it is so much more than your checkbook. We've never passed a plate here because I'm not interested in your money and neither are the other pastors. We are interested in the obedience that flows from your life. In fact, many men write a check to things that they're not completely committed to. The presidential nominee for the Republican Party right now has supported the other party his entire life. And now he's saying he's not completely committed to them and no one has a problem with it. Don't you believe for a minute because somebody gives money to a church, they support what the cause of the church is about. They might be doing it trying to buy favor with God the same way that politicians buy favor with each other, paying each other off. Can I tell you, you cannot pay God off. He's interested in one thing from you. He wants your obedience. And first fruits was all about the first part of your obedience. 
From there you counted 50 days. First fruits is called Rashith. From there you counted 50 days. Do, does anybody remember how long Jesus walked the earth after he was resurrected? You can shout it out if you do. 40 days. So you would have those 40 days plus an additional 10 before you would get to Pentecost. Do you know what the disciples were doing between the time that Jesus ascended and the time that Pentecost happened? They were praying. They prayed for 10 days. Do you know how long Peter preached for on the day of Pentecost? About 10 minutes. Maybe we have our formula wrong. If we prayed 10 days to speak 10 minutes, we might see the radical transforming power of God. We would rather preach for 10 days and pray for 10 minutes. What Pentecost was all about, I have taught many times, and, and I'll allude to some of it today, but it's a feast of ingathering, a feast of empowerment meant for Israel and the nations. And when I say that, the Jews were reading the book of Ruth on this day. It was an amazing thing. And all the nations of the world that had Jews in them, the Jews traveled from there back to Pentecost on that day to hear Peter's message. They had been doing it for years. Some of you traveled for the first time to this church today. The reason the Jews did this is they wanted to experience something with the Lord. Because the first time Pentecost date ever fell on Israel as a nation, it was Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai happened to happen, happened to happen, on exactly the same day as Pentecost. If you're interested in that kind of thing, um, we have a foundation study where we go through those things on Monday nights, and I want you to hear about them. Today, though, I want to focus on a few things that are practically applicable to you in this service and don't just feed your biblical knowledge base. As we move on from Shavuot, we get to Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. This is the announcement that atonement is coming. Isn't it amazing that you can be supposedly a Christian your whole life, never share the gospel, but you get filled with the Holy Ghost and you want to tell everybody you know what has happened. In fact, we're so excited, so zealous about it, that it leaves other people sometimes going, well, what's their deal? Why are they always talking to me about the baptism in the Holy Ghost? I mean, it's Jesus that's important. Well, amen, it is Jesus that's important. And he come, becomes so much more important to you after you get filled with the Spirit that caused him to operate the way that he did. <clears throat> The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus in the Bible. From the Feast of Trumpets, where we are announcing atonement is on the way, we get to the day that Israel is atoned for. Yom Kippur, in a single day, the whole nation is atoned for. Can you imagine what it would be like to have every person in the United States in a single day right with God? Man, you probably cannot imagine what that would like. Would be like it would be hard to imagine if every person sitting in a church was right with God. This first happened with Israel on the day that God spoke to them at Mount Sinai, which also happened to be Pentecost. So Pentecost has an incredible 
a rich history in the Jewish nation. The last feast was Tabernacles called Sukkot, where they celebrated the time that they wandered in the wilderness and the Spirit of God led them in temporary dwellings. And we'll cover that more as time goes on. I would like you, if you don't mind, to turn to 1 Kings 18. Say there when you were there. Amen. I'm going to wait on you all, so you better call out. We stand at an interesting crossroads in our nation. And just as much as we can look at those feasts that are from Israel and see that they were a gift of God to Israel for the display before all mankind, we can look at Israel's history and learn from their history how we might uh, proceed in the same situation. Anybody in here have an older sibling? Raise your hand if you do. If you saw your older sibling get put in jail for stealing gum, it might tell you, Not to steal gum. You go for the Jolly Ranchers or something that's easier to fit in your pocket. But you don't do that. I mean, you may make your own mistakes, but you ought not make the same mistakes that you see your older brother make, right? Oh, look at you. You have experience in this subject, it sounds like. I was drawing on a hypothetical, but it sounds a little bit like at least some of you in the center over here know from experience what I'm talking about. Israel is an older brother. They've saved us um, many hardships simply by going first. Don't you appreciate it when a difficult question is asked and somebody else blurts out an answer first? Because if they're wrong, you can go, <laughs> yeah, I knew that. And if they're, they're right, you can go, oh, yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. It feels good sometimes for someone else to go first. Israel paved that way for us. And for that reason, we have a debt to Israel. Now we are in the year uh, 840 or 50 BC in this text. So this is nine centuries before Christ. And we have a prophet to Israel named Elijah. Elijah is a unique man. It's hard not to love this guy. And we have a king named Ahab. Ahab is not so lovable, and his wife is less lovable than he is. I don't know whether you've ever met a couple where you really liked one and couldn't stand the other. You wouldn't like either one of these. You just would like one of them a whole lot less than you dislike the other one. Ahab and Jezebel had led Israel into idolatry. So they took the right things of God and they perverted them. So many times they would say the right words but they were performing the the wrong actions. Many times they would claim that they were doing something good when in fact it was evil. It's a good thing that that happened nine centuries before Christ and we don't see anything happening like that now because the Lord knows you can trust every nonprofit organization. You can trust every religious institution. They've not caused any problems on the planet. And when you give a dollar to help uh, feed children in Africa, that whole dollar gets to Africa, right? 97 cents doesn't go into a CEO's pocket. You know, one cent into a worker's pocket and two cents go towards food. What's wrong? Are y'all asleep? There have always been problems among those who are supposed to be representing God. Always. And there have always been those with the voice of Elijah. 
Listen to what he says in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 18. So this is 1 Kings 18, 18. Are you there? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. Isn't it interesting how the one who wants to shake things up is always the troublemaker? How about the one that puts you in the ditch? How about the one that puts you off the right path? Why is it always considered divisive to do the right thing? You know, it's an interesting thing. I could go to bars. I could fight in parking lots. I could do things too indecent to mention right here and had no problem in my church life. I got filled with the Holy Ghost and suddenly that was divisive. Why do you think that is? Have I not? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. What causes trouble for a nation? When you abandon the Lord's commands, 100% of the time, trouble comes upon the nation. So do you need a crystal ball to know what is going to happen to this nation? You, you really don't. 100% of the time, to abandon the Lord's commands brings the judgment of God. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Don't you love the simplicity of what Elijah says? You know, one of the things I hear just rattling around a lot is, I know so-and-so is a wicked man, but I just like that he speaks honestly. I like that he speaks from the heart. I mean, I know he's immoral, but I just like, you know, that he calls it like it is. Is it too much to ask for both? Someone who loves the Lord and speaks honestly? It's amazing what the church will settle for because of her corrupted state. Because Elijah hated corruption in the house of God. He hated it. He hated it so much that he's standing with 450 prophets here, 450 prophets there, a king and his wicked wife and a nation that has followed them. And he gives a clear call. That says you can serve the Lord or you can serve Baal. You could even get the impression that Elijah didn't particularly care what your choice was. He just wanted you to make one. He was tired of the house of God being mixed with materials that it should not be mixed with. Do you really want to experience Pentecost today? How mixed are you with the world? How mixed are you in your desires? How bad do you want Pentecost? Bad like when you waited in line to see that movie? Bad like when you paid all that money to go to the sporting event? Bad like, you know, you got your first day off in a month and so you blew off the church service with the Lord and the presence of God and you just went and took some me time, huh? Bad like that? 
or bad like 10 days in agonizing prayer saying, Lord, if you don't give us your spirit, even though we spent three and a half years with you, we are not fit to represent you. See, the early church desperately needed the direction of the Lord by way of his spirit. They did not think that simply having the word, the words of Jesus alone were enough. They understood that you had to worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus told them, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive what my father promised. It was not an option to not wait until you had been empowered by God because you would misrepresent him if you were not filled with his spirit. How important is it to be filled with the spirit in the house of God? Is there anybody in here that wants to end all wavering? Wouldn't you just like to know where everyone stands and stop seeing people bounce all over the place? On Sunday, they love the Lord, but on Monday is back to business as usual. Am I the only one that hungers for what Elijah does? We live in a day that says expect nothing of the people. Don't, don't you lay any burden upon them. I mean, after all, they probably... They probably will just leave if you do. Here's the result. Charles Spurgeon was a man who lived from 1834 uh, to 1896. And uh, I'm sorry, 92. He says, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining goats. Friends, we're not waiting for that time to happen. It has landed. It is upon us. Look around you. When people are not only condoning things that God hates, they're standing representing him going, Hey, me and my husband, I know we got a divorce and I know what the word says about that. But, you know, the thing is, is he wanted to pursue his ministry. I wanted to pursue my ministry. And so it's really better for the body of Christ that we do this. It has nothing to do with our sin, our unrepentant hearts. It's really all for you. Just keep those checks coming. Or when we have the largest church in our nation, have a lady stand up and say, you don't really serve the Lord for him. Not really. You serve the Lord for you with a great big smile. Do we not have clowns entertaining goats? Let me put it another way. If we only could count, Brent Vincent and I were talking about this just the other day. If you could only count those who were willing to go to war. In Israel's census, they were only allowed to count those who were of fighting age and were willing to fight. If you could only count those who were going to war, do you think we would still need cathedrals or could we get away with storefronts? How committed are you? See, it won't do us any good today to examine the problems with the world without starting with ourselves. Tolstoy said, everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. I want to show you a few things today that might shock you. I grew up in a denomination, at least in and out of the denomination, and we kind of thought, look, there may be some other folks that are doing all right but I mean, we, we really have got, 
got the best available out there. Now, it may be true every denomination thinks that, but I want you to catch a few of these numbers. Watch this. What if there were 15.3 million people that you called members of your organization? Would you say that's a lot or a little? I would say that's a lot. Of course, if you act like those 15 million represent all of Christendom, that's not even 4.7% of the United States. So it's, it's probably a little silly to act like you own the world if you're only 15.3 million. Now, what if we go a step further and you say, wow, you got 15.3 million people that you call members of your church. How many attend weekly? Well, 5.6 million attend weekly. Of our membership, this group is claiming, we have 15.3 million people in our fold. They're with us, they're members, they're voting members, and only 5.6 million attend our services each week. How would you feel about that? Is that good or bad? When we look at that, that is 37 percent of the 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 membership is attending can you imagine dropping the bar so low that you were happy when 37 percent of your church shows up each week you know that means that 63 percent is not showing up every week how about if you dropped in baptisms every year for the last 10 years. What if you dropped in salvations. Every year. For the last 10 years. What if the only thing that you had increased in. Was the number of churches. Physical buildings that you built. But even that did not keep up with the number of pastors. That had left your denomination. Would you call that a success or not? That's the Southern Baptist denomination. And I grew up in it. I'm not here to pick on the Southern Baptists today. Those numbers came from them, though, in 2015. Do you know what the Southern Baptists have in common with a lot of other folks? Most of them are cessationists. They do not believe that the gifts of the Spirit should operate in a church. You know, when you consider this percentage, maybe you say, well, that's those Baptist folks. How how about our Methodist friends? Anybody come from a United Methodist background? Anybody want to distinguish yourself as a different kind of Methodist? No, 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 not United. I'm Wesleyan Methodist. There are 7.1 million Methodists in this country, and there's 2.8 million in each service. You already done that math? You already got it kind of going in your head? 39% of United Methodist members attend their church each week. Does it sound like we're shooting for a minimum here? Does it sound like we've accepted that if you made, I don't know, one in every three services, that's good enough for us? When you punish the people with these kind of low expectations, what what do you think that you'll get? See, we believe that the Spirit of God will come upon you and He will enable you. To keep his commands. We believe that you cannot do it alone. But if his power enables you. That there is nothing that you can't do. You know. 
When you're thinking about these kind of statistics, which I'm going to get off of quickly. It sounds like y'all, y'all are having a tough time with them this morning. There's this little place in Anaheim, California. And um, in Anaheim, California, they have a Disneyland. And just to give you a comparison, at Disneyland, we have about 16 million people that come every year. About the same number of people as there are in the Baptist church in this nation. But Disneyland has a 100% attendance of the people that want to go to Disneyland. You know, this could lead a reasonable thinking person to wonder whether or not we might stop trying to recreate a theme park experience and return to the power of the Spirit. It might make a reasonable person Start questioning the attitude that says we need to entertain you from parking lot to parking lot. It might make a reasonable person look and wonder whether we are punishing you by our low expectations of you. Whether we need to repent from powerless proclamation of a powder puff gospel. It doesn't save anyone. It doesn't change anyone because it doesn't challenge anyone. It simply says, if you show up here, I don't know, once in a month, then you're doing pretty good with God. But that's not what the Word of God says. Look, I'd like to show you, when we're looking at Anaheim, California, I'd like to also show you our next slide, which is uh, should be maybe four or five. It's about indulgences. The church tried this. It's what caused the Reformation. There was a time period where the church began giving out get out of hell free cards. And there was penance for your sins if you would go and fight in the battles of the church. This sounds very much like Islam. And it's something just as wicked Islam. And it it simply occurred in a different time. Okay. In 1343, Pope Clement... The sixth proclaimed the treasury of merit. Now, if that sounds um, interesting to you or maybe you're not sure how to take it, this means that the church has the ability to forgive your sin if you show your dedication to the church with enough money. Does that sound like that squares with the word to anybody in this room? How about in 1476 when Pope Sixtus IV extended indulgences to all Christians to help them Avoid purgatory, a mythical place that the church created to extort its sheep. Or Pope Julius's, who wanted to pay for his war and the art that he liked by selling indulgences. By the time you get to Pope Leo X, John Tetzel is running around all of Europe saying this, when coin and coffer box rings, from purgatory a soul springs. That was the church jingle of the day. He needed to help his pope Build a bigger building, the largest church building ever built, St. Peter's Basilica. Now, when I say that, is that offensive to you? Is there anybody in the room that thinks we ought to return to those days? Isn't it kind of the same thing if what we want from you is to show up once a month as long as you put money in the plate and then we tell you you're doing fine and you go out the door? Haven't we just pacified your conscience in exactly the same way? 
Haven't we just accepted something from you without requiring anything of you? This has become the norm. So much so that our newest church members feel a little uneasy when we say, we missed you last week. Where were you at? We, 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 we expect you to be in the service. We need you. We need your help. We're actually a family and we hurt when you're not here. You're like, what? These people are all up in my life. Yes, the early church was actually a familial structure where everybody was all up in their life. What kind of church have you been going to if they didn't care about your life? See, when you remove the power of the Spirit, when you say those things have ceased, then you can replace it with any cover-up for carnal desire. The people want to be free from their sin? Repentance is too hard? Just let them pay more. You know, there was a sliding scale for indulgences. How long will we waver between two opinions? Most Protestants are offended at the idea of an indulgence. And we've slipped into exactly the same practice. We love the world. We do what the world does. But we're Christians because we intellectually ascend to a few places in a church doctrinal statement. And we attend the church, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 times a year. What happened to the church that was so birthed in power, so overcome by the Spirit of God that it shook the Roman nation? What happened to the kind of dedication where every apostle was not only willing, did give his life for the gospel except John, and that was just because after three attempts they couldn't find a way to kill him? When's the last time you met Christians like that? Would people describe you <coughs> like that? How about this one? Let's go to Ezra 10. Say there when you were there. Everybody getting there around the room? Well, I'm sure that it's right. Is that enough for us? Look, even if I sang the song out of tune, it wouldn't change the veracity of the lyrics. The question is, do we need a pastor who is pretty and juggles like a monkey on the stage to entertain you? Or are we going to be led by those with Holy Ghost convictions that inspire but also require us to rise to the level that God says he set for us and destined for us. Do you want to be challenged, church? Okay, three of you do. Then what are the rest of you doing here? Do you want to be challenged, church? Thaddeus, do you want to be challenged? I intend to challenge you today, Thaddeus, because I believe that it would be bigotry on my part to expect less of you than the man sitting next to you. I think that it is wrong if we look at Justin and say, you know, I mean... He didn't have a great upbringing or he's too tall or he's too handsome to serve God. Whatever it is, let's just let him work it out. You know, that is not the way that the early church operated. Their loving boldness was so confrontational that people often picked up rocks to kill them because they couldn't handle the truth of what they were preaching. We believe in an in your face Christianity. 
Say, oh, well, I just believe in being respectful. Every single mainline denomination, everyone, say every, every, is experiencing year after year decline in this country. Decline in every self-measured statistic. Every single mainline denomination except one and i don't even have great praises to sing of them but they are the assemblies of god who has grown for 25 straight years every year more than the year before every year they've experienced increase during the same time period that all other mainline denominations have decreased now what is different about the assemblies of god historically they believe in the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Don't get me started on missions. You, you don't even want to know how bad the statistics are on missions. I came to preach the word, not statistics. Are you in Ezra 10? Yes. Ezra was a priest. He lived in the 450 range BC. He worked with a governor named Nehemiah. And in chapter 10 and verse 4, Ezra prescribes a, a, a solution to a problem. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. Say take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up. Say rise up. Rise up. I'm going to rise up. Listen, we can't sit on our blessed assurance. And sail through our salvation. And expect that everything's going to be okay. If good men sit and do nothing. The world goes to hell. While you fiddle. Claiming to be a Christian. Ezra told the people clearly, we are with you, but you must rise up. You cannot pay us enough to elect us to be your champion. We won't do it because the gospel of God is based upon you being filled with the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead so that you personally do the works that he called you to do. See, I believe that Chris will do the works that Jesus called him to do. I believe that David Hull is like a lion in a cage waiting to be released with the potential of God. But if what we do is say, don't worry about it, Ray. Don't worry about it. You know what? Just throw some change in the plate and it'll be okay. Well, Ray and I may never have a harsh word. Of course, we'll never have much anything else either. The Lord God has called a spirit like Elijah to say, pick a side and get on it. We're way past time of trying to ride a mythical fence. So Ezra rose up and he put the leading priest and the Levites and all Israel under an oath to do. Say to do. To do what had been suggested. It's not enough to agree with what was suggested. It's not enough to protest through abstention. You know what? I don't agree with what they're doing. So I just won't be a part. Well, great. Now the only person acting are the ones that you don't agree with. You did the world a significant favor. Thank you. It requires the people of God doing to change the things on the earth. Not abstaining. Do what you have been suggested. And they took the oath. Verse 6. Look what Ezra did. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God. And went to the room of Jehoiathan. Son of Elishab. While he was there. He ate no food. Drank no water. Say no water. It's one thing to eat no food. But drink no water. 
because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Does it hurt you that people are so unfaithful to our king? Or have we become a little indifferent? See, let's put it in real terms. You may go, well, sin or sin, dogs bark. I've said that. I personally have become indifferent. Calloused heart. Need, need it circumcised. Get so focused on discipling the ones that are right, I forget about all the ones that are not. But I love this woman. Jen, stand up. I, I love her. Come on, honey. Got to set a good example for the church now. Even my wife is slow in, in doing what I asked today. Isn't she pretty, y'all? Oh, man, do I love my little songbird. She is uh, she's special to me beyond all others. For 23 years, we've been absolutely in love. Not, not kind of, sort of, like embarrassingly in love. Like if your kids spend the night at our house, you know, they'll come back telling you those people kiss all over each other all the time and they're always poking at each other and, you know, they're like teenagers. Look, she's squeezing my hand. Be, be quiet, be quiet. <laughs> I'm not ashamed at all of how much I love her. Not even close. I wasn't ashamed when I was 18, not when I was 28, not when I was 38 or however old I get. If you have a low opinion of her and it comes to my attention, do you think I'm going to be indifferent about that? Let's just be honest. I don't need everybody in the world to love her. Okay? But if you have the audacity to sit in, I don't know, my house, and you had a low opinion of my wife, I'm just going to tell you that day's not going to go very well. How do we sit in the church of God indifferent about how he is viewed? Oh, well, to each their own. I don't feel that way about my wife. You're not entitled to your own opinion about my wife. You're entitled to the opinion I agree with. Because she's precious. You're, ha, 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 that's cute. How about your child? Okay. I've noticed nobody's child is responsible for anything that's wrong. Oh, it's just that he's tired, you know. Oh, it's just, you know, he's, got, he's overcoming a little cold about two months ago. Uh, he, he's hungry. Uh, uh, you know, it's, he, he just came back from the grandparents. It's never just that you got a bad kid. Do you know why? Because you care very much how everybody thinks about your child. So you defend them to the nth degree. Is the Lord worthy of less zeal for him? I'm going to tell you the truth. I met him in a way that people's apathy towards him offends me. It, it is down in the marrow of my bones to where I'm not always friendly to people that I don't feel like are being very friendly towards him, but they say they represent him. Now, we're talking about a prostitute. If we're talking about a tax collector, I have no issue with those that don't claim to... I have a father that says he is a born-again pagan. I get along with him just fine. But I have other relatives that claim to represent him and are mean. They, They misrepresent. We don't get along at all. You are the house of God. This is where judgment begins. You said you wanted to experience Pentecost. Well, everybody wants the icing that is on the cake. But are you willing to do what it takes 
to get there because the church to meet with God, the people of God to meet with God were always consecrated to him. I'm going to show you that in the word. Is that okay? Let's go to Exodus 19. See if we can catch a rhythm here. It feels very much off balance. Are y'all doing all right? Can you imagine showing up for Pentecost just kind of hoping the whole fire thing would get over? Gosh, it was a long, long walk up here to Jerusalem. I don't know what those guys who seem to be drunk up there are doing, but I just, you know, I need a nap. Can you imagine that? How does your hunger compare with the hunger that we read about? Where for 10 days they're seeking the Lord. How does your hunger now compare with the hunger that you had two days after you got born again? See, somewhere along the way, did familiarity breed contempt? Did you begin to treat the Lord like, oh, well, I'll get to you after I watch my television program? Did you begin to to look at the Lord like some people treat their spouses? You just kind of take them for granted until, of course, they're not there. Well, there's a lot of pain in this world from that one. What if you were like Samson and you didn't even realize the Lord's presence had left you because you had taken it for granted your whole life that his mercy was just on you. His mercy was there until the day that his mercy is not on you because you have proverbially spit in his face through your lack of attention to his will. Okay, if I ask you if you love the Lord, probably everybody in the room says yes ask you if you obey the Lord and a bunch of you squirm with the answer. I ask you if you are doing the will of God this week in your life, a whole bunch more of you will hesitate. I got saved with the verse, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Did you hear that? The litmus test is not whether or not you're one of 15.3 million people on the rolls that attend church 37% of the time or whether you're not a part of that crowd at all. You chose the 7.1 million uh, on the rolls, 2.8 million that attend weekly and attend church 39% of the time. So the blue group on our board says, we, we attend far better than you. 39% is better than 37%. And the group that's represented with the darker color writing on the board says, oh, no, no. We've just got more members than you, so we must be better. And they are both dead wrong. When we compare ourselves with others to make ourselves look good, we just prove how wrong we both are. When we look at the numbers of people associated with our point of view and and try to call it right because of the numbers of people associated with our point of view, all we do is prove there's a whole bunch of us that's wrong. There is one standard, just one. Could you go to Exodus 19? Say there when you were there. In Exodus 19, starting in verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. 
The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. What would it be like for a whole nation to be surrounding a mountain? And the very voice of God come from above the mountain, which it's got a fireball on top of it, and a man converse with God. And hear this, every person in the nation heard the voice of God. Would that be something that's amazing? This was kind of the first Pentecost. In fact, if you went to a foundations class, I'm going to give you a, a, a glance at slide five of something that you would see. Now, I get that you can't read that. I want to just hint at a few things there and then I'm going to leave it. This is a teaser for what those of you that attend the church but don't find the time to get to a Monday night for whatever reason. Some things that you're not learning. You are not learning that there's three regalia feasts, that those three feasts are associated with the three parts of the Bible, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, that they're associated with the three major themes of Judaism, creation, revelation, and redemption, that it has to do with the three parts of the human being, the heart, the soul, and your strength, the three parts of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, Three things that Paul wrote about from him, through him, and to him. Three parts of the Jewish wedding, the Ketubah, the Erusian, and the Nesween. Those would be seven things you would have learned about Exodus 19 that night. You would have seen seven things that compare in, in a similar way, not a contrast, compare Sinai to Pentecost. You might have found out that in both instances the Spirit wrote on the hearts of men. The finger of God and the spirit of God are the same. You might have found out the mathematical reason that both occurred on the same day of the year. You might have found out that both were theophanies, that both had mixed national presences in front of them, that both heard something like tongues and the etymological reason why, that both were represented by fire. You would have found out that the teaching was given at... Uh, Sinai and the teacher was given at the first century Pentecost would that have been worth learning you know I found out those that sacrifice to get what they want are the ones that are benefited by it the most I'm not rooting for more people on a Monday night the truth is we can't fit one more person in the room I'm just rooting for you to want what is God's because it's easy to say, I'd like to have a Pentecost experience as long as you don't have to do a thing in the world to get it. And you've been raised in a church environment. Every age in here has been affected in the last 40 years by a church environment that thinks that the goal is for you to be happy with the way the service went. I actually would not be satisfied unless a great portion of you were seriously unhappy with the way the service went. Because if you're all thrilled to death, that means I didn't touch not one area that needed to be changed. That means that we're showing up praising each other for being on the rolls of our organization 37% of the time. I believe that the Lord is doing more here. I want to show you seven ways that the Lord speaks to his nation by fire. Is that good? Would that be okay? These seven ways that the Lord speaks to his nation by fire. The first was at Sinai. The whole nation hears it. So you can see that 
here in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, 18 through 20, Sinai, we saw that the whole nation saw the presence of God in fire and they all heard his voice. You know what else? Put 1 Chronicles 21 on the screen and it will be uh, 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 21. Then David, uh, then David approached and when Aruna looked up and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. Verse 20. David said to him, let me have this site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Somebody say full price. Do you want to pay the full price to see God's fire fall? Before you say yes, listen, there might be another way. Aruna said to David, take it. Let the Lord, the king, let my Lord, the king, do whatever pleases him. Boy, isn't that what the church says today? Do whatever pleases you. You can have it. It's no problem. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. Boy, that Aruna sounds like a great guy, huh? Doesn't he? Sounds like the pastor that you want. Sounds like the pastor that this nation has raised up for themselves. It sounds like a clown that expects a goat to act like a goat instead of a shepherd that expects this sheep to be what God called him to be, a sheep. But King David replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying full price. When will we rise up and say, I will not tolerate this sloppy gospel. I will not participate in something that is so inclusive it excludes God. No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. What is your walk with the Lord costing you? How can we say we're denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, if that cross and that denial has cost you nothing? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? You know, I bet that that's not being shared at that compact center this morning. Because that's not what they're paying to hear. And that is what they're doing. We'll show up once a month. We will pay this man to entertain us goats while he shows God that he's a clown. Pastor, I don't know how you could say those things. What do you think Elijah would have said? Or Paul, who speaks about those who were corrupting the right way and says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Or John the Baptist that speaks to the religious aristocracy of his day and says, you brood of vipers. Don't you come to be baptized without first producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Jesus who called Herod a fox. Or Paul who said, if even an angel gives you a gospel other than the one that I gave you, they are damned. How serious is this? It's incredibly serious. Look at how God responded to David's heart. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. 
David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. It turns out that if you're willing to pay the price like David did, if, if you're willing to do that, God himself will meet you in the middle. He, it's not that you earn half of the way. It's that that offering expresses to him how much you love him and you want to pursue him. You know, how, how about this one? Go to Leviticus 9. Say there when you were there. In Leviticus 9, 23 through 24. I should have put them in chronological order. Holding the mic, holding the Bible, and holding the pen is more challenging than I thought it might be. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. The very first time that the whole nation was touched by God with fire was at Sinai. The second time was here in the Moses, in Moses' tabernacle where the Levite priest had the altar of God lit by fire. The third time is something called David's tabernacle. This would be the site where David's tabernacle would occur and later uh, a tent would be built. And now we move to the fourth one. In, um, Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 4. David's son, Solomon, is praying. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all of the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. What was the response to God blessing them? Just like there was a response to Pesach. They needed to move through first fruits. They needed to sanctify their lives. And then they moved to first fruits and they needed to bring something to the Lord. Let me ask you, what sin is this sacrifice paying for? In, in the next verse, show the next one. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle. I'm not even going to read the rest. Let's just, let's start with that. What sin was that paying for? It wasn't paying for any sin. It was an expression of their love and their devotion to the Lord. They were saying, no cost is too high. We are so happy that you are among us. We are so thrilled that your spirit is here. No cost is too high. You know, in this day, a cow was a little bit like a used car. I mean, couldn't you imagine all of us say we'd rather cut our cars in half than not have the presence of God? 
Now, at this point in Israel's history, we're at about 1,000 B.C. And already four times, the Lord has descended in fire upon the entire nation at a place of worship. Then we get to Acts 2. Put Acts 2.1 on the screen. In Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Again, we have every nation that has Jews in it represented there. The whole group is there just like they were at Sinai. And God is appearing in power with sound, with fire, and with men who are proclaiming His truth and speaking to Him. The people, read the next verse. The people are now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Just like Exodus twelve thirty eight says it was a mixed multitude who was at Sinai. When they heard the sound and the crowd coming together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language, even though there were many nations there, they were hearing these people prophesy for God. In talking with the Vincents here recently, they couldn't help. Go to verse 7, verse 8. They couldn't help but notice then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Verse 9. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the uh, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans. What's that last one? Arabs were the last group to, to announce that they heard them in their own language. Do you think it's a mistake that on the globe today, the people that are the last to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Muslim world? Do you think that's a mistake? We need a Pentecost. We need a Pentecost for us, and we need a Pentecost for them. In Acts 2, they were answered by fire. Go to Isaiah 4. In Isaiah 4... There is something prophesied about in the future of Israel. And it's verses starting Acts 4. I'm sorry, I keep saying Acts and I mean Isaiah 4. Verse 2 through 6. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of... A spirit of... Next verse. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over all those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be 
a shelter and a shade from the heat of day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. How many of you attended Nolan and Tara's wedding? Jews got married under something called a hopa. It's because when God married the nation in the very first revelation by fire, he descended in a cloud. The Jews wanted to symbolize that cloud of God's presence. They wanted to, to have something devoid of furniture so that their wedding would emphasize that the covenant was important, not the decorations. They wanted to be able to glance right out from under the hopa and see the stars that were their heavenly promise that they would inherit what God said they would inherit. They wanted to see the sand that said we will be given natural offspring. They got married in a way that always caused them to remember Mount Sinai and the very first Pentecost. What this prophecy in Isaiah is promising. Isaiah is in the year 720 BC. It's been many years since the Lord led them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Many years since that would happen. Isaiah is promising that he would wed them again. He is promising that there would be another ceremony. You know, if you have a, you have a moment, right? What else are you going to do? You're here. Let's look at Zechariah 12.10 while we're talking about this. In Zechariah 12.10, <clears throat> And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. It sounds like he would pour out something like that spirit of fire that would purify them. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This is a day in the future of Zechariah where he is waiting for Israel to again be renewed to the Lord. Go to the 13th chapter in the first verse. <clears throat> On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Isaiah and Zechariah are prophesying about a day in the future in which God for the whole nation would cleanse them. God for the whole nation would purify them by fire again. Do you know what Israel has to go through to get to that day? But you want Pentecost without any effort. Anybody seen the films from the Holocaust? Anybody been to Yad Vashem? I know. You've been taught, oh, that happened because those people denied Christ. It's an ugly thing to say. It happened because they're called by God's name. It happened because people who were called Christians... It didn't necessarily mean that they were called by God's name. In other words, you could be a Christian and nobody knew whether you really were God's people or not. But if you were a Jew, everybody was completely sure that the Bible said you were God's people. And so the spirit of the world hated them. How much has Israel gone through to get to this day? I'm excited it happened in Acts. I'm excited that you, many of you have experienced so much of Acts. But what is the nation going through and what will they yet go through? And we, we want it all so easy. We're supposed to not just learn from our older brother's mistakes. 
We're supposed to learn from our older brother's example. And in this way, the suffering servant of God, Israel, has set for us a very fine example. Second Thessalonians, go to the fifth chapter. I'm sorry, the first chapter and fifth verse. There is a seventh time that the whole nation will be witnessed to by fire and you will be standing with them. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you are. What's that word? For which you are. Oh, church, what's wrong? You've never seen anybody walk in a service before. All of this is evidence. That God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are. It's amazing. I bet if I asked you how many people wanted a thousand dollars, you could jump up and down for that. But it's hard to get enthusiastic about the word suffering, isn't it? This is evidence that God's judgment is right. Last part of the sentence. You are suffering. What is the evidence that God's judgment is right? The tenacity of your faith. The perseverance of your character. The way in which the Spirit of God in you caused you to react to unthinkable situations. Look at verse 6. God is just. He will pay back those. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to those. Sorry, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Imagine this. The church has even worked it out. We're to see the return of the Lord in blazing fire. Do you know what you don't have to do? Suffer. Of course, I think any honest reading of the book of Revelation would say differently. Listen, if you want to experience Pentecost and everybody in this room said, yes, yes, we want to experience Pentecost. The question is, what needs to change in you? What do you have to do differently? In what way have you gone all in for the king? Or is he just a, maybe a good part, maybe a shiny part, maybe a presentable, pretty part of your life? but just part of your life. Because the men that experience Pentecost, in the moments before they experience Pentecost, had to be secluded, hidden, in an upper room, behind a locked door, because at any moment they could all be killed for what they believed. That's how they got the Pentecost of the first century. The nation that got Pentecost... In the very first example, in Acts 19, they had just walked through a Red Sea and seen those who wanted to kill them drowned. How badly do you want Pentecost? At the what they call the Azusa Street Revival, nearly every mainline, not nearly, every mainline denomination condemned the event. An African-American named William Seymour who was partially blind in one eye, a humble and godly man, preached for two solid years 
about the baptism in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues before he himself experienced it. A woman in his church fell off of a stool where she was sitting because they had been praying for hours and began speaking in other tongues before William Seymour ever did. And I cannot even speak out loud the ugly things that they said about that honorable man. You want Pentecost. How bad? It's an easy thing to say. The truth is that we are infected by something. A church world that all around us, we see that if you show up about a third of the time, that's good enough. If you give about a third of your effort, leaving two-thirds for any other thing, that's enough. But with God, it's never been enough. The radical call of the gospel is a surrender of absolute all. Seven times in Israel's history, he answered them as a nation by fire in a way. Number two is at Moses' tabernacle, it's a dwelling of God. Number three, at David's tabernacle, the dwelling of God. Both of these tents where the ark of God was, it symbolized you and me. Number four, the temple of God, the permanent dwelling that symbolizes your glorified body. Number five, actually on men. He lit the altar of their hearts. I mean, this is, these are unique. And yet, it's not the passage that we started with. Could we put slide six on the screen? I can see, yeah, he's got a great beard, doesn't he? Now, why don't y'all answer me today? David, does he have a great beard? Jen, do you have anything to say to me? Oh, wait, I couldn't hear you. Hold on. I love your beard. Amen. Could you feel the sincerity dripping from that? It sounded about like the 37 percenters profession of faith. I consider that the chief danger which confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. How interesting that he put that first. Religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance. How important is that? Salvation without regeneration. You see it everywhere. That's how you have clowns entertaining goats. Politics without God. At least we didn't fall in that area, right? Heaven without hell. Do you know that Hindus miss the kingdom of God? You know, I don't know that they do. I know it's not my way. Really? Because I've been to India eight times. And I've seen what their gods have done for them. And I've watched people radically set free by the power of the Holy Ghost. I've seen demons come out of people and them get filled with the Holy Ghost. I've seen people throw down their crutches. One man that we thought was so old he couldn't still be living, leaped off of his mat he hadn't walked in years and walked home with 400 children rejoicing all around him. Don't don't tell me that they have the light of the gospel without the gospel. It takes a depraved mind to not be able to answer that question, especially when he knows it's coming and is asked over and over and over. 
Have you been too busy to tend to God's fire? Let's look at Leviticus 6, verses 12 through 13, as we come to a place where we are going to consider decisions we have to make. The fire on the altar must be, somebody say must be, must be be kept burning. It must not, say must not, must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offering on it. Can you show slide number seven? Anybody know what that is? Anybody know? It's funny how many people said cup of coffee. You don't know what's in it. You just know what you want to be in it. You know, it's glowing red in the areas that that temperature is about 115. What are the outer regions? About 103. As you get further and further away, what's the ambient temperature in the room? About 73. You know, it's an interesting thing while you're looking at that picture. No matter how hot you get that water, the second law of thermodynamics, it it governs a process called heat transfer. What heat transfer does is it moves from an area of greater concentration like, like the center of that cup to an area of lesser concentration. In other words, it dissipates until it reaches a place of thermal equilibrium. In other words, no matter how hot your fire is, if you don't do anything to it, Even science says it will dissipate until you become exactly the same temperature as the world around you. Do we need another Pentecost? See, the priest had to add wood to that fire. Go go back to Leviticus 6. The priest had to add wood to the fire. They had to tend to it every day. They said, you must add. You must not let it go out. Must, must, must. Did you hear must in it? You said must. There's a reason for that. God himself lit the fire. And when God lit the fire, that was a work of grace. But he expected you to keep that work going. Can you go to Leviticus 6.12 so they can see it? The fire on the altar must be kept burning. Who lit it the first time? It's number two on your screen or on your board. In Leviticus 9, God lit the fire. But they had to keep it burning. Have you kept your fire burning? Are you maybe just a little warmer than your neighbors? How long before you come as cold as they are? See, the natural order of things, entropy, decay, it means that unless an outside force is acting upon you, unless you get an infusion from a heavenly place, You're going to grow cold. Can you honestly say that you're hotter now than you've ever been for the Lord? How about your marriage? You're more in love with your spouse right now than you've ever been. Because the day you married her, the day she married you, Pastor Sutherland said it yesterday, that ought to have been the day you loved them the least in your whole life. Because every day after that was supposed to grow. You've been faithful to that? Or has it been dissipating? Jesus is pretty 
extraordinary. Look at Revelation 4 and verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. While you think about that, consider something. Everywhere you see Jesus in the book of Revelation, everywhere that he's mentioned, it says something about his eyes. It says his eyes are like, quote, blazing fire. Revelation 19, 11 through 18 describes him as the head of the armies of the Lord. Put that on the screen. Revelation 19, 11, I saw uh, heaven standing open. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges the nations. His eyes are like... His eyes are like... And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. How did Jesus get eyes that were like blazing fire? Well, it turns out that there are seven blazing or burning torches before the Lord. This very symbol of his spirit that goes back to ancient times called a menorah is actually standing before his throne. And it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven burning branches and yet is one menorah. It represents the Spirit of God at the throne. And Jesus' eyes were full of what Jesus had been focused on as a man his entire life. You can't experience Pentecost without looking towards the heavens for what you don't have. Religious people always miss the first experience with the Lord because they think they already have what they need. Tell me we haven't been conditioned for the very same thing. Is your prayer life faithless, fireless, feckless, While you're in Revelation, go to the 8th chapter. We'll just read two verses. Revelation 8, let's pick up in verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hands. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. Say fire. Fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. It shook the earth just like his first visitation from Sinai. And what was it that he used? The prayer of the saints and fire from the altar. It's possible to pray all day and not have any fire in it. It's possible to talk to God all day long, but have no heavenly anointing from it because you think you have all that you already need with your one-third commitment. 
because it's what we've been taught all around us. My closest friends outside of this church have said things like, do you really have to be so serious all of the time? Yeah, all of the time. Does it really have to be so so challenging all of the time? I mean, do you have to do missions like that? Yeah, yeah, we do. Does it always have to cost all you have? Yes. There's one resounding reason why. Because he's worth it. He's worth it. And if you won't do that, then your actions are saying he's not worth it to you. So what the church world does and say, no, I would do it if it was asked of me, but it's not being asked of me. So I come back to Elijah. Is our land overrun with idolatry? Yep. Are our leaders wicked? Yep. Are our churches led astray? Yep. Then it's because we're wavering between two opinions. There can be no other answer. Go with me to 1 Kings 18 where we close today. I love to hear those little guys getting there. I'm going to tell you the truth. There's some teenagers in this church that run you over from behind because they haven't been taught to endure the apathy that we've become so accustomed to. Hearing teenage boys in this church look at other people that have been Bible teachers in their churches for decades and say, with all respect, sir, I hear you saying many fine things, but I didn't hear anything from the law of God, the prophets, or the writings. How could I in good conscience know that that's not just your opinion? It wrecked the man's world. In fact, he's a totally renewed and changed man today. You know why? He encountered somebody. In fact, a whole group of somebodies. They've been raised in a different paradigm. One that says he's worth it all every time. Half service is no service at all. In 1 Kings 18, we read about Elijah's challenge. I'd like you to see what he did so that you will know what the Lord will do for you if you are willing. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, somebody say all the people, come here to me. I have preached another hour on that verse. I've been scolded for not returning calls quickly enough. The pastors are gossiped about because somebody was at their house and You didn't get an invite. Our doors are open all of the time. We're saying, come here to us. You want to learn how we do what we do? The door is open. Don't stand back and criticize those who have the courage to come while you hide in the shadows of your apathy. You'll get exactly what you want. Just this week, Somebody showed up at my house completely unannounced at the most inopportune time. 
I could say that about any week in my life. I sat and listened to their list of 10 revelations they had without speaking. It took an hour of time before I prepared to meet with a couple that was there for marriage counseling that would be a three-hour meeting. Smiled, listened to it all, genuinely excited, and heard the very same week that I was being criticized by the same people for not giving them enough of my time. Church, listen to me. You will get exactly what you want. You say that you want the Lord. We're with you, Pastor. You don't show up to services. You don't show up to the things that God has organized for you and then complain about what you don't get. You don't want Pentecost. You want a powder puff Christianity that makes you feel better about yourself. I'm assuming that if you continue to walk through that door, it's because you want to rise to become what God has called you to be. That you didn't come to have your ego padded. You came to have your soul, soul stirred. Elijah challenged the nation. And they didn't want to be challenged any more than I like to be challenged. He challenged the kingship. He challenged the prophets. But most of all, he challenged the people. And the first words out of his mouth were come to me. You want to learn? You cannot stand in the distance. Doing it your own way hadn't helped you thus far. They, come, they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord. You know why you have to go to somebody else to repair the altar? You didn't know it was in disrepair, which is why you let it get that way. You don't see yourself clearly. You absolve yourself of the things that you think are okay and justifiable while at the same time holding others to a standard that you don't keep. Do you know how I know that? I do the same thing. I can be instantly angry that my wife did something once that I did ten times. That's why it's required of every man to be accountable to other men. Required of everyone. They will show you how to repair the altar of your heart. And it requires of you humility. It requires of you to allow somebody else to speak into your life and say something other than life is terrific, business is wonderful, and you're great. It requires them to say, hey, I love you. I see a passion for God in you, and this must go with sin. Say, so, well, you know, I don't think it's sin. No, the Bible says it's sin. Look, watch, read this. And when you see it, you know that it's true. The young man that got married the other day, Nolan, you know how many times he was corrected? He almost wore my corrector out. Well, I appreciate, but that was all private. Nobody knew about it. No, it wasn't. I preached about it. I did it publicly. I, I one time stood him on the stage right here and handed the microphone to Mr. Charlie first, Miss Joe second, I think Patricia after that. We worked it around the room until the whole church had corrected him. The young man has his beautiful bride today and lives in a holy life. Well, good thing it was just him that needs that kind of accounting. The New Testament and the Old teach every one of you do. We're just used to, I don't know, about 37%. Church, we want more. 
come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, say 12. 12 stones represented every tribe of the nation of Israel. 12 stones meant that they were all in and all united. There was no halfway motion here. We couldn't, we couldn't settle for 37. Per, do you know what this actually means, by the way? Is anybody, anybody astute enough to have observed what this means? It means that there are actually 5.6 million Baptists. It means that there are actually 2.8 million Methodists. Because that's all that shows up in their churches. It doesn't matter how many people say they identify with it. I identify with unicorns. But until just a couple weeks ago, that didn't make me a unicorn. That is fantasy land. And the church would rather pretend that something's wrong with the statistics, wrong with the reporting methods, wrong with anything other than have to repent. Because the truth is we hate correction. Now, if you're sitting out there like I would be if Pastor Wade was preaching this, I'd be like, I'm not Baptist. I get it. This is not about Baptist or Methodist. This is about American Christianity. In India, people walk miles to get to the service. I prayed for a woman that in five years had never missed a church service and her husband had never failed to beat her for going. Now, I met a man whose legs were broken because he said he wanted to walk with the Lord. That was 16 years earlier. He's still walking with the Lord. You want Pentecost? Have you ever asked... Why do miracles happen everywhere else? You're looking at the reason. Paul Youngi Cho asked, what was the difference between Korean Christians and American Christians? And he slipped. He forgot he was a mega pastor for a minute. He said, well, Korean Christians are far more serious. Um, there are many differences, cultural and otherwise. We love prayer. He caught himself in the middle of what he was saying because he was on a worldwide broadcast. But he began to say exactly what he meant to say. Korean Christians are far more serious than American Christians. How serious about the gospel are you? In verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. I'm out of time and nearly out of energy. You repair the altar of the Lord. The thing that has to happen. Brother Alex just taught about it on a Friday night meeting. There has to be a cleansing. It's not enough to just put the stones back in order and pretend nothing happened. There has to be a cleansing. And just like pouring water on wood, you go, well, how will that help the fire? All it's going to do is make things look worse. All it's going to do is show that it's more impossible. No, it actually is showing that you trust God. Amen. He didn't just pour one or two or three Four times they pour water on this. 
Do you know why? God values the tears of your repentance. God values your repentance. To repent doesn't keep you from getting the fire. Keeps you from pretending you have something that you don't have. And allows you to get it in a supernatural way. See, nobody could question. I mean, these weren't Duraflame logs. No gas jet down there. If they had been soaked in water, who's the only person that could have lit it? See, your repentance magnifies God. But it's, it's embarrassing. Yes, you were supposed to diminish you. To magnify God. That's what it means to deny yourself. It's hard. It hurts. And he is worth it. Elijah called for water. The next thing that he calls for. At verse 36. At the time of sacrifice. The prophet Elijah stepped forward. Say at the time. He stepped forward. How many times has it been time for you to take a step forward? And instead you thought, well, you know, if it's really God, you know, he'll tell me again tomorrow. I know Pastor Piro just said it as plainly as could be. But if it's really God, Pastor Sutherland will say it too. I, I, I know, I know that, that the Lord wouldn't, wouldn't tell me to go talk to them even though I'm trembling at the very thought. And I've never had this occur to me before and it's now on my mind. But I mean, uh, I, I'm sure, well, anyway, let's just go eat. You want Pentecost? We repair the altar of our hearts. We allow repentance to flow through us like water. Even if it destroys the very wood that we're trying to light on fire. Because God is bigger. And then when it is time to sacrifice, you step forward when the whole world is stepping backward. You know, so many things could be said that would be true about this church. I'm just going to be honest. We rarely step back. Because he is worth it. Do you really want Pentecost? How many times have I asked you that today? Because you've gone from raising your hand and saying yes out loud to crossing your arms and nodding your head. Do you really want Pentecost? If you really want Pentecost... Verse 38 says, then fire from the Lord fell and it burned up the what? There's only one way for you to receive Pentecost. Your life has to become a sacrifice before the Lord. As long as it's yours. Do you know what 37% really means? 63% of your life is yours. Do you know what 39% means? 61% of your life is yours. A part-time commitment with a full-time promise is no commitment at all. Going to church twice in a month. Reading your Bible before church. Praying when somebody's sick or something is wrong. You'll never have Pentecost like that. They spent 10 days in prayer to have 10 minutes speaking for the Lord. They spent 10 days in prayer during a time 
when the whole world would kill them if they could get to them because they valued communion with the Father. Their eyes were set on fire by the very throne of God. Jesus has blazing eyes because the throne of God is blazing. And your eyes are the lamp of your body. What do your eyes say about you? Are they blazing with the fire of the Lord? Do you really want Pentecost? See, I want Pentecost. I want Pentecost bad enough to leave my hometown, bad enough to leave my home church, bad enough to leave the only house I've ever owned, bad enough to leave the only businesses I had ever built, bad enough to leave the only positions I had ever achieved of any value and start a church in my living room that not even my own family would attend. I want it bad enough that I took drug addicts off of the street just to have somebody to show the love of the Lord to. I want it bad enough that I drove to other cities to tell my friends that they should be crazy enough to come and seek Pentecost with me. We want it bad enough that we called our brothers who were in mega churches and said, are you having Pentecost? No, come get it with us. We want it bad enough that we will hurt for it. How bad do you want it? Oh, you don't have to cut yourself. The prophets of Baal did that. You just have to be obedient even when it hurts. And you say, I don't know if I can do that, Pastor. To be honest, I've tried and I failed. Anybody tried to be obedient and fell down trying? That's why you need Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the power of Jesus to carry out the deeds of Jesus. But if you're not being obedient now with what he's given you, why on earth would he give you more? If you're not even trying now, why on earth do you give a man that can't drive a tractor a Ferrari? But if you've got your tractor maxed out and it's breaking down every now and then, but you are faithful then you might get an upgrade. I've preached the baptism of the Holy Ghost all over the world. There is no nation where people don't get filled. There is no denomination that's been able to shut him out. There is no heathen temple that's been able to exclude his presence or power. I have never lost a standoff with a witch doctor, and many of you have seen them. I have never lost a standoff with a demon, and many of you were there in Romania, many of you there in Africa. The power of the Holy Ghost is available for all who are willing to be obedient to him. Fire will fall. But you have to have more than words. You have to want it. You have to want him, the personage of Jesus Christ by way of his spirit. Could you stand to your feet?